we have a passage to work through that is everyone's favorite passage, the genealogy of Jesus. It's that part in the New Testament, the very first page, very first line that so many of us are like, Israel has been waiting for a Messiah for like almost 500 years of prophetic silence. And Matthew is going to give us on page one a long list of names. If, you have, if you've ever read the Old Testament or you've done a Bible reading plan or you've watched Bible Project and got a 12-minute version of the Old Testament, which I did yesterday, it was amazing. You're like, if I'm going to like write about the climax of a story, I probably am not going to like start with the readers or the hearers with a long list of names. Of course you and I wouldn't, because that's not our culture. Can I get an amen? But in many cultures, even currently today, who you are and where you came from and who your daddy was have huge implications for your life, for your purpose, your identity. And I've been thinking a lot about family trees and roots. I have a few pictures. Do you guys, is that okay? One of the things about roots is that, how many think that that's beautiful? I mean, it's, it's beautiful, like the roots, the, the family tree, and the, it's, it's kind of beautiful. But how many also, if we're honest, it's a little bit like our family trees, a little bit freaky. <laughs> little, unless your family's not like my family. But, so it's like beautiful, striking, stunning, and ugh, messy. Turn to your neighbor and say, he's not talking about my family. He's talking about his family. You know, they're gnarly. The, 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 the system, the trees, the roots, and how they overlap and intertwine, and they're just reaching for life and nutrients and nutrition. I'm not a botanical. And then, but, but how many know they also show us the way home? They can also remind us, they also can, and especially in our genealogy of Matthew's gospel, the very beginning of your New Testament, we're, we're going to look at how it's really, it's a door, that behind that door, there are thousands of years of expectation, hope, brokenness, despair, depression, murder, adultery, greed, hatred, lust, longing, shady dealings, giving up your wife, saying she's your sister. I mean, but through that door, we're going to discover today that God is the faithful driver of the story with Christ at its center. That you may be here today, just, you know, spoiler alert for the end of the message, and you think, my story, no way. You don't know who I am. You don't know what I've done. You don't know how mangled my mess is. You don't know about my dad or his dad's dad, or you don't. And I want you to know that the genealogy, to a modern reader, it may be boring in just a list of names, but if you'll have ears to hear for the next few minutes, you're actually going to discover it's an invitation to bring your mess and let Jesus rewrite your story. Yeah. So I'm just going to read it, and you're going to laugh over my pronunciations. But you're lucky I don't call on you to make you do this. So an account, and it's not on the screen, so don't, don't advance it. It's Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. And yes, I'm going to read the whole thing. An account of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Don't, hey, don't show the screens. It's not on there. I love you. Sorry. 
Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Aram, and Aram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Solomon, or Salmon if you're hungry, and Solomon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. Dun, dun, dun. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, otherwise known as, what was her name? Bathsheba. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. Are you still with me? Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, or Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, his brother, at the time of the deportation or exile to Babylon. We're almost there. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, and Abihud the father of Eliakim. Help me out, Gene. And Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Elihud, and Elihud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Methan, and Methan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Messiah. So, all the generations... So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David to the deportation or exile to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Aren't you inspired to take Bible language classes so you can pronounce those names better than me? That was a joke that no one thought was funny. Praise God. So I just want to work through, there's a few things here that if you, that, 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 you know, first of all, um, Matthew's a genius. Matthew, or, or otherwise known as Levi in the Gospel of Matthew, most scholars believe he's the author of the story. My favorite, I don't know if it's my favorite gospel. I, it's a good one. It's, it's like one of my top four. <laughs> Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's four. Okay, so... Um, so, what, but, but Matthew's a genius here, and he, 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 he's telling a story through names, and isn't that how stories are told? Give me your aunt's name. Someone shout out your aunt's name. Lance, tell us about Marsha, but don't really. Like, the name, behind the name, there's a story. There's, a whole, depending on how long they live, a whole generation, generations of stories, and Matthew has carefully selected through biblical and, and, and then extra biblical and in his compilation of this list, he's telling a beautiful, unbelievable story that I hope you'll never read the genealogy ever again the same after today. That it's a story that has Christ at its very center. And it's a story of which you and I are called to participate in. So let's just go through a few, a few little talking points and then we'll, we'll pray and then you can... Cheer for the Chiefs later as Tom Brady uh, discovers that there's a new cowboy, I mean, chief in town named Patrick Mahomes, but from Kansas City, okay, you can't hate on me, 
The first thing I want to just draw our attention to is that in the Greek, the original language, the New Testament was written. I am not a Greek scholar. I've taken Greek class or classes. I forgot how many. But I do know this, that in the, in the original language, um, are you at the very beginning of my notes, pal? Um, thank you. No, yep. No, you, you, you were there. You were there. Right there. It's, it's, it's Biblos Geneseos. And does, does Geneseos trigger anyone's imagination? What other word does that sound like in your Bible? It's at the very beginning. So in the original language, it's the book of, of generations or the Genesis, which Matthew, because he's a genius, he's trying to tell us, many scholars think, not all, that, that, that he's not just writing a list. He is doing nothing less than saying through Jesus, God is ushering in his new creation into his world. It's the Biblos Geneseos. It's the new beginning that's coming through Jesus. Cool, that's like awesome. Is that new creation is coming and Jesus is the one who is going to bring it about. The book of the genealogy, the Biblos Geneseos, a book of Genesis that Jesus will be the hero and star of. What's the next thing you learn about this genealogy if your Bible is still open? It starts with the last person first. Now, don't get me preaching already because I got I to journey through this list fast. But why is that significant? Did you know that Jesus is the eternally existent, uncreated second member of the Trinity who is with the Father and the Son and the Spirit from before there was even any matter on the earth? There was Christ that even though, yes, he broke into history and in the season we're celebrating called Advent, that he is the preexistent, eternally uncreated Son of God. And, and, and so we have this list, and unlike most lists, you usually want to save the, the one it's all pointing to. But Matthew's like, he's, he's not just the omega, he's the alpha. He's the beginning of the story. And just even now, as before we dive headlong into this, a very few points of the list. Not every name, for the love of Pete. But I want you to know that even if you haven't acknowledged him as such, there has been one who's been working on your life, in your life, in and through your story, even before you knew it, Jesus. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's been working in your life. This is what's so stunning about the, the pridefulness of hu humanity, but that God in his mercy, he just lets us think we're the superstar, superhero, self-made, it's us, 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 until we come up against a wall that we can't scale. And he tenderly and mercifully says, if you'll trust me with your story, I can take you from here. He's the alpha and he's the omega. What else do you see right here at the very beginning? We have two names that really shine throughout the list, David and Abraham. So why is David important? Because God promised King David, the greatest king in Israel's history, that through his offspring, through his lineage and his seed, he would establish an eternal kingdom and he would sit on a throne forever and ever and ever. So this Jesus, this Christ at the beginning of the genealogy and the one that it's all pointing to at the end, he, Matthew's saying without blushing, He's the king you've been waiting for. Why is Abraham important? Well, because through Abraham's seed, the entire world would be blessed. So you have a, a king 
who would reign forever in an eternal kingdom. And then you have, through his rulership, the nations, the world would be blessed as they look to and acknowledge her rightful king. This is verse 1. Why does it matter? This is so helpful. Why does it matter? Who cares about Messiah, the anointed king, and about David's ruler? This is so fascinating. If you read the beginning of your Bible, Matthew 1 through 11, you see quickly what happens when humans are the ones who think they are capable of naming good and evil. It all crescendos when they're exiled from the garden, from, from uh, you know, Cain killing Abel, and then uh, obviously God's like, Bummer, these image bearers are harder to work with than I thought. So he wipes the earth of its evil in Noah, and then Noah gets drunk on a vineyard he plants as soon as he gets out of the boat. Why? Because the problem wasn't just external, it was a heart that was in treason and rebellion against her God. And so you see all of this crescendo in Genesis 11 when humans build Babel, this human project that had God at the margins and man at the center. Without reference to God, it was this self-exalting, self-sufficient project that God in his mercy steps down from heaven. He confuses the language and he scatters all of humanity all over the face of the earth. Because he's like, I'm not going to let them continue writing a story without me at the center. I know the demise. I know how much destruction they will unleash and they already have through violence and greed and oppression just the first 11 chapters of the book. But he comes down and he says, no, I can't wipe the earth of humans because I gave Noah that rainbow thing. (laughs) So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pick a person and build a family on the earth that's going to serve as a blessing to all of creation and all the earth. So it's like, I can't do it with everybody, so I'll just try one family. But remember those family trees. It's not like God had it easygoing journey with the people he picked. And he didn't pick them because they were numerous or strong or amazing. He picked them because he loved them, Deuteronomy 7. Just surely. I mean, his, his election was not based on anything they brought to the table. Which is another point number two. It's never about what we bring to the table. It's about receiving God's life-giving invitation. And if you think and despise, well, what a little old me, what do I have to offer and add to the story of God that Jesus is the king of? That thinking is not from God. It's from the enemy who wants to accuse you and say you are, your value and your worth are not good enough to be used in the hands of the creator. And the truth of the gospel is that's baloney. You're invited to participate. So why does it matter with what God's doing through Israel? I just gave you a crash course on biblical theology in the Old Testament. But here's the smartest, way smarter than me. N.T. Wright says this. In Israel's scriptures, the reason Israel's story matters is that the creator of the world has chosen and called Israel to be the people through whom he will redeem the world. This is my favorite line. It's underlined in mine. The call of Abraham is the answer to the sin of Adam. Israel's story in a small, that's what microcosm means, in the beating heart of the, it's the beating heart of the world's story, but also the ultimate saving energy. What God does for Israel is what God is going to do in relation to the whole world. That is what it meant to be Israel, to be the people who, for better or worse, carried the destiny of the world on their shoulders. Grasp that, and you have a pathway into the heart of the New Testament. 
So when he says he's the Messiah, the book of Genesis, the beginning, the new creation that's coming through Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the shoulders that he's leveraging and placing this whole grand redemptive storyline on is the person of Jesus Christ. That's first one of the genealogy. The rest of the points are going to be way faster. But you've got to get it. We are a part of an epic story, and it's not the story of of gifts and I need to hustle and keep up with them and my lights are better than that. It's a story that has Jesus at its very center. So Abraham is the father of Isaac and Jacob and Judah. We already read all this stuff. But the next thing I want you to see that's important in this list is, did you notice that there were four women listed? Turn to your neighbor and say, hey man, I noticed. Or the other neighbor, he's making me feel really isolated. I never read my Bible. I'm new to Christianity. Way to go, Pastor Chad. What is stunning about this and this time period during which Matthew is writing and he lived is that women basically had no rights. In both Greek and Jewish culture, they had no legal rights. They couldn't inherit property. They couldn't give a testimony in a court of law. That a, a woman was completely under her husband's power. She was seen less as a person, more as a thing. In fact, the Jewish man thanked God each day that he was not created a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. Yet right here in the genealogy of Jesus, according to Matthew, four women play a prominent role. Now, what you'll notice, and again, just nerd out with me for a minute, press in to the list, because there's implications. Who of the four women of Israel's matriarchy, who would you expect to be in the list? Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, and the the four, but who is in Jesus' list? Okay, Tamar was a Canaanite who seduced her father-in-law because he wouldn't give the next son in line because they're two previous sons, so that's kind of shady. That's kind of like that root system. <laughs> right? Rahab, she was a prostitute. Not, it's not like Auntie Martha that you want to include in your family line. You got to see this. Ruth was a Moabitess, which was, a, which was an offspring of when Lot, you know, he, he, he settled for Zohar, which in the, in the original language means small, instead of going to the mountains that God said to go to. And it was too close to their former life. So his wife looked back, turned to salt. And as a result, his daughters had no man to marry and carry on the lineage. So the Moabites are the offspring of this incestuous, really, really gross. Think of your father-in-law. Moving on. That's Ruth. She's a Moabite that both Jews and the nations, Gentiles, hated. She's in Jesus' family tree. And then there's Bathsheba. Matthew won't even write her name, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, who either seduced David or David fell into lust. Now, why is this striking that God would include these four women in the story of redemption that he's writing through his son, Jesus the King? Matthew goes out of his way that the barriers between men and women that now in and through this biblios, this biblos geneseos, this new creation, this new story I'm writing, those lines that once divided us, God and his great mercy through his son are breaking through. Those who used to not have a voice, those who were viewed as things, not people, God is saying through my son, I'm restoring dignity to humanity. 
This doesn't mean that roles disappear. Just go on to read the rest of your New Testament. There are beautiful roles, life-giving roles within the framework of a house that's oriented around the gospel. But it is to say, those that you used to be pushed to the fringes and the margins, if you read all of Matthew's gospel, you'll see they're finding themselves right at the center of the story of which Christ is king. So you may be here like, Chad, you don't know my past. You don't know what I've done or what's been done to me. And I want you to know, you have a place in the story that Christ is writing today. Matthew goes out of his way. You would expect the four big matriarchs. Instead, you get these four, at least three, maybe four, are of Gentile origin. In the line of King Jesus. You didn't know the gospel was hidden in a list, but it's everywhere. The new and surprising ways God is finding a way to get to us in our brokenness, sin, and mess, and saying, that's not the end of the story. If you'll look to me, I'll take it forward. Even in a boring list, we're seeing that God is up to something. Are you still with me? Say amen. amen. What else is really neat, if you go on, I thought this was cool. I, I'm done. Whatever. Just ask for my notes. We're past it. It is cool, but now I'm taking time. So here we go. So there's a couple names here. And I, I put a star by them. What are, what's the name there? Asaph. Now, if you, if you are a, a Jewish listener, which Matthew's gospel, uh, most scholars believe, was sort of written to, primarily to a Jewish audience after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you would notice that in the place of Asaph, there was actually someone else's name that was supposed to be there. And if you have an NIV or an ESV or a cell phone, you'll realize that in the Greek, Matthew actually wrote Asaph, but interpreters later said, but he couldn't have been Asaph. It had to have been maybe a mistake. So they put Asa. Anyone remember King Asa? Just read the Kings and Chronicles. He was a mess. He was terrible, pagan. But who is Asaph? Help me out, Bible nerds. He's the, one of the chief psalmist worship leaders in Israel's worship. Asaph, if you read. So, so okay, that's really nerdy. No one cares. Okay, but ancient, listen, I just studied, so it's fun. So, yeah, let's go. Ancient rabbis were able to, to deploy word plays by changing a letter here or there. Within first century biography, it was totally in bounds. It's not like, the, it's not like fake news. In addition, Jesus being the direct line of David, he's also the spiritual heir to the Psalms, Asaph. And who else's name got changed? I'll help you. I put a star by it. Right there. Instead of the name Amos, what does Amos remind you of? The prophet Amos in the Old Testament. The, the, the actual name, if you're following the genealogy, was Amon, another perverse, wicked, terrible king. So what is Matthew doing? Who in his early, probably childhood or te early teens, had the entire Old Testament memorized. Do you think he made a mistake? Like, crud, I dropped a letter. Matthew, again, just read commentaries. I'm not crazy. I'm not saying your Bible's not sufficient. In the Greek text, it's literally Asaph, who's the leader of Israel's worship, which represents the priests. And it's literally Amos instead of Amon, the king, which is to say 
that Jesus is not just a king. He is the priest and the prophet that carries the message and the word. He is the message. And he's not just the priest who stands and mediates on behalf of God. It becomes the sin sacrifice that the distance between sinful humans and a holy God has forever been crossed through Jesus. And again, we get this in Matthew's genealogy. Asaph, the listeners who knew their, their Hebrew scriptures, Jewish scriptures, they would, Asaph, that's where Asa belongs. Matthew's telling us a story through the names. Jesus is that priestly, royal, prophetic king. What else does it say? Humble opinion. Humble opinion. When Jesus is in your story, he rewrites your story and you get the good instead of your gunk. So instead of Asa, the terrible king of Israel, or Amon, the wicked, God makes you an Asaph. He makes you a priest. He puts a song in your heart. <laughs> your worship is acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Instead of Amon, the wicked, you're a prophet. You get to hear God's voice and participate in his purposes and release his heart to those around you. This is all found in the list. It's good news. And then lastly, we see that that last little block of 14 generations is from the exile to Jesus. Now, one of the tragedies of exile, think about it, if you're not only your temple, which is the center of your cultural, social, spiritual, economic, it's like the center of your very identity. When it's destroyed and a pagan ruler comes and takes you from your land in exile, what is one tiny thing that usually can get lost in the shuffle by direct implication of another king conquering you? Your lineage, the line to which all the promises pointed, somehow gets broken. So in exile, you're not just away from home, you lose hope for the promise. If another king is reigning and ruling in your land, what are you going to do with all of those prophetic promises that said, through David's line, a seed of Abraham and then Judah, Genesis 49, that there's going to be a king who's going to rule the kingdoms of all the earth. If I'm in exile, scattered and imprisoned and enslaved again, just like Egypt, now Babylon, then what am I going to do with all of those promises? What am I going to do? Did God somehow miss it? Is our sin too great for him to overcome and to accomplish and finish the story that he started to write with that man called Abraham? And of course, Matthew gives us names that even in exile, God's story continues. Come on, somebody say amen. Come on, who has ever experienced that? I, I've, this last week, a, 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 who's ever experienced a season that you just didn't feel at home? Those things that you, thank you, those things that used to, that used to identify you, like you're in a season of transition. Maybe you're, maybe you're about to retire and your kids are out of the house, but now you've got to take care of mom and dad. It can feel like you're away from the familiar. Come on, someone say amen. Or your kids are about to go to college, or you're about to get married, or you're single, and you're like, when is the spouse coming? And you don't feel at home in your own skin. I want you to know the story of God is still being written through what you would perceive as exile. I don't feel at home. I don't. I don't belong, I, I, but God, you promise if the, the plans you have for me are good, That's, which is a promise written to an, people in exile. 
away from home. The one we all have on our coffee or you have on your coffee mug. And I want you to know that even in exile, the author of the story is present. Even in exile, even in those seasons, I've been in a season of, of uh, just no social media. I'm going to stay on this for very short because I think it'll apply to many in this room. Uh, almost two weeks, social media is like things like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. And I wasn't like an addict, trust me, ask my wife. I'm pretty like, hey, babe. Let... But even the little that I did, I, that being gone has I'm not saying like exile status, like Israel being taken by a foreign king. But, the, but listen, listen, the illusion of friendship, the illusion of connection, the illusion of I'm known or I know what's happening in New York or Texas or G Germany, the, the illusion that w what I say to an empty blank world called the internet matters, the, the illusion of my importance and for two weeks, I feel like I've been spinning around, like chasing my tail, like, do I have anyone that knows me? Does anyone really care? Does it? Don't be sad. It's a genuine thing. It's been discombobulating, but, but in exile, it's not just, it's not a time to just blame God for your lot. It's a time to say, Holy Spirit, search me. What brought me here? And in Israel's case, and in Judah, and in every human's case, what brings us to the lowest, darkest places is our sin. When we choose to be at the center of the story instead of deferring, surrendering, and yielding to the lordship and the supremacy of King Jesus, living that life with him at the margins and you at the center always takes us farther than we wanted to go and keeps us there longer than we wanted to stay. So even in exile... You know, like, I don't know how he's going to do it. My marriage is on the rocks. My, my, my kids, my, the Lord's like, trust me. Trust me in exile. Trust me in that ache. Trust me in that longing. Your story's not done. Come on, someone say, my story's not done. It's not over. Even if you thought the line had been lost, Matthew shows us that there was one tracing the story behind your mess. And he was in front of you making a way, even when you didn't know which way, right or left, up or down. I forgot who I was. I became like them. I thought this was it. God's like, no, 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 no. Exile is not the end. It's not over. And then lastly, this is just kind of cool. So all the generations... From Abraham to David are 14. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14. From the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14. Oh, I don't know. The Spirit's already moving. I don't, that's, this is just all neat stuff, the next part. But can I just go there for two minutes? I mean, just, and then just say it's been two minutes, shush, and let's close. You're like, why, why 14? I know some of you in this room are totally into like Bible and numbers and charts. And do I got any of those people? No, I mean, it's awesome. It's fun. Um, here, absolutely, if 14 is being used that many times in the, in the Hebrew um, uh, language, uh, letters correspond to numbers. The, care to know the numerical value of David's name? 14. So D, D, David, DVD, there is no, uh, not DVD like watch the show, but you know what I'm saying. 
So Matthew is, if you're especially in the original audience and the original, you're like, oh my gosh, I see what he's doing. 14, 14, 14, 14, 7. seven, seven. Seven's obviously like very big in the Bible. Just say amen if you've heard that seven matters. Okay, so, so, so I'm just going to cut right to it and give you the best of the best of what I studied on it. It's two paragraphs and why I think it's significant and really cool and not just me, way smarter people who have been faithful throughout the millennium, throughout generations. So why seven, why 14, and then David, why does his name equal 14? And um, First of all, what other famous numbers, just so you don't think I'm crazy, we totally do this in our culture. So no, so, so who, no, I mean in culture, culture, like the world. Like who's the greatest, who's number 23, greatest of all time? So you knew 23 applied to, like even non-basketball players are basically, you get what I'm saying? So, so if you're like, why is he ascribing value to like numbers? Why does it matter? Our, we totally get it. Turn to your neighbor and say, amen, Chad, we get it. Let's move on. Like 23, greatest, Michael Jordan, we know, 23, great. Number 12, he has won like a bunch of championships, Tom Brady. He's going to go down in a few hours, but we, number 12, number 12. So just like we have numbers and jerseys and we know if you're a Jewish boy or girl and you're into the store and you hear this number, it's triggering something in your head. Just like you know, number 23, I know, I was the Jordan generation. I had the shoes, watched the games, got to see all the championships. Even in Kansas in June when there was tornado watches and warnings, I still remember it as a little kid. So in Jesus' day, 14, 14, 14, 14, David, the numerical value of his name, they're like, Matthew's telling us something. The greatest of all time. The one that all the promises hang on. Okay, it's good, it's good. And of course, seven is the perfect half of 14. And why is seven significant? All right, skip right to the end. Here, I'm, I'm going there, the whole list, okay? So, so three groups of 14 or six groups of seven. Uh, some scholars like to break it up that way. Here's why, okay, get over it. Here it is, here it is, here it is. And then we're done. It's cool. It's not just Bible trivia, although it is cool. It is cool. The number seven wasn't as the most powerful symbolic numbers. To be born at the beginning of the seventh seven in the sequence, like Matthew has Jesus. If you do the math and count the names, I'm not weird. I am weird, but you know. To be the seventh seven is to clearly be the climax of the whole list. This birth, Matthew is saying, is what Israel's been waiting for for 2,000 years. It gets way cooler, okay? Just Daniel 9, just go read it. He prophesies 70 sevens or 70 times seven. Okay, are decreed for my people in your holy city to finish sin or transgression, to put an end to sin, atone for wickedness, and to bring everything, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, to anoint the most holy place. Those rabbis and, 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 and revolutionaries right around the time of Jesus when Rome was occupying, Israel was home, but they, had occupi- they, they were being occupied, oppressed, manipulated, Many scholars in Jesus' literal day are like doing the math. Has it been 400, because 70 times 7 is 490 years. They're like, has it been, is he going to come? Is it? And then several fake Messiah kings rise up, Judah the Hammer, who, who like sort of revolt against Rome, but they eventually got smashed and nothing ever changed. Come on, somebody. There's a way that seems right to man, but in the end it always leads in death. 
So, so right here, this promise of Daniel 9, the 77s. Again, Matthew just told us 14, 14, 14. David's name, literally, the value of his name is 14. He's like, what gives? Okay, here we go. And then we're done, promise. How long will exile last? That's the question. How long until we can come home? Come on, somebody. You know you've asked that. I know I have. When am I just going to accept that, 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 Lord, this is how you made me? And it's not a mistake. I'm your masterpiece. That's my personal. I don't know about yours. When, when are you going to act? Can you imagine waiting, waiting, waiting? You, you, your, your community or your, 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 the, the place where you worship, you're reading these prophetic promises, and God promised that he was going to act. Has anyone ever waited on God and just thought, man, God's taking his sweet old time? <sighs> I'm the only one, obviously. Come on, God. 490 years. 490 years, okay? 70 times 7. Why is 7 significant? Here we go. Every seven days, seven days there was to be a Sabbath. What's Sabbath? Shabbat. Rest. You're not God. He is. The world goes on without you. Stop, rest, enjoy, be present. You're made to live from rest, not kill yourself ravenously and then rest when you tank. That's not his original intention. So every seven days there was a Sabbath. Every seventh year there was a sabbatical year. Let the land, let it's just, just let, let the things grow. Come on, somebody. And every seven times seven years, there's this little thing that very few, few times ever even got celebrated, but it was a brilliant idea from Yahweh when he gave them the law. Seven times seven years, there was a thing, little thing called a jubilee. Say jubilee. Jubilee. Jubilee was the time that every 49 years slaves were freed, Debts were forgiven, and the land is returned to its original owner. That's the jubilee. Everyone say jubilee. So what do you think means the 70 times 7? That's how significant 7 is to Israel's story and ours as we're grafted into this beautiful story through Christ. What does 70 times 7 means? I love this. N.T. Wright. It's the jubilee of all jubilees. Oh, wait. You're going to get it. You're going to get it. We, if you're in that list and you're like, Matthew, this list is amazing with Christ at the center. And you get the seven times 70, 14, blah, blah, and you're like head spinning, but not if you knew that culture. That when the promise on the back end of that 70 times 7 comes, it's going to blow everyone's categories of freedom, forgiveness, healing, restoration, deliverance. And the moment it comes with Jesus... Instead of years, Matthew does it with generations, generations of enti the entire history of Israel from Abraham to the present, all the generations, 14 times, six sevens. When Jesus, we get the seventh seven. He's the Jubilee in person. <laughs> I like it. He's the Jubilee person. He's the one who will rescue Israel and through that rescue operation, the long-continued nightmare over the nations will be lifted through the gospel. Oh, 14, 14, 14. It matters. Matthew wasn't just like, I'm super bored. I want to add a few numbers here. Jesus is the long-hoped-for king of Israel. Listen, the jubilee in person the one who's at the center, he has power to forgive, to rescue, to free, to heal, to restore, and to usher in God's kingdom into your life right here today. 
right here today. If the result of your sin is exile, the result of the forgiveness through Jesus would be return home. If you're in exile because of sin, which is very clear, read your Old Testament, then when Jesus gets and starts forgiving, what is he saying? He's not just like in our individualistic mindsets, oh, I'm forgiven, I'm good, me and God. No, he's like, come home. It's the end of exile. Forgiveness of sins is the end of exile. Come home. You belong to God. Find yourself in my story. Beautiful quote as I close by Eugene Peterson, the man. When we submit our lives to what we read in Scripture, we find that we are not being led to see God in our stories, but our stories in God's. God is the larger context and plot in which our stories find themselves. So why the genealogy? We're in this Advent series with Christ at the center. Now, I hope you don't just leave with, oh, those are cool facts. He included women, and that's cool, and there's people from every phase of Israel, like patriarchs, judges, you know, deportation. That's neat. The 14, that was really cool. The end of that jubilee in person. My hope is that you will find yourself through the grace of Christ wrapped up, written into God's story today, Period. That you bring the brokenness. If you go back to the roots, uh, go back to the, the, the first pictures, Justin, the gnarliness of your family tree or your story. Um, yeah, it's right there. Just the first couple slides. You're like, Chad, my family's jacked, dude. I'm, I'm a mess. I, I mean, I'm like, and I want you to know that with all respect to scripture, so was Jesus's. Like he didn't come in a Petri dish. He came through the long and windy story with the sinfulness, brokenness of humanity, the only sinless one, but the climax of that story and now the center of that story. And from the center, he's not saying, good luck finding a way in. Oddly enough, he's called the door. Go back to the door one. Didn't plan on that. That was cool. <laughs> he's actually, Jesus is actually, he's, oh, and also what's he called? The way. What else is he called? The shepherd. And what's a shepherd? The shepherd will lead you home. He's going to lead you home. So today, maybe you're like, dude, I've, you identify something. There was four or five big points today. But the point is that Jesus is at the center of the story that God is writing, that he wants through that story and those people of the story to transform the world through the love, power, and grace of Jesus. One of the great uh, realities is today, one of the greatest realities is the one who is the author didn't just write a story and say, man, I sure hope they figure it out. He has come to us. And his invitation, which is so stunning now in light of all of this, his invitation is, follow me. Come into my story. Come into my kingdom. So would you stand on your feet? I just want to give you a chance to respond. Maybe you're in exile. Maybe you feel like yeah, there's no way I could be written in. Maybe you're like, Jubilee sounds really good. 
I got a lot of debt. <laughs> Come on. Maybe you find yourself in some situation not to trivialize literal exile and those nations and people that are experiencing it currently all over the earth, being away from home. But, but in a real sense, maybe you're like, dude, I would, if, if, if the offer to come home was given, I, I would do it. I want to come home. And I just want you to know the great news of the gospel is that there is room in the story for you and for me. There's room. And Jesus, what we find with Jesus, unlike every other king, priest, or prophet, he's the most generous. Just come, come to me, all of you. That's what it, The way is narrow, but the invitation is, is cosmic. This is all of you, just come to me. If you're weary, burdened, heavy laid, come to me. I want to teach you how to live, how the, how the story works with me at the center and you yoked up to me. But you've got to respond in many ways, in many ways. You've got to say, Jesus, I want you to not just, if you're the Jubilee person, I want you to wipe my sins away and I want to come home to your love. If that resonates with you, just, just pause and just in silence and, and just come home to Jesus. There's not a, he's the, he's the door, he's the gate, he's the way, the truth, he's the life. He's the long hoped for king. He's at the center of a story that's the true story of all stories. And at the center, he's made room for you to come home. And so, I mean, I don't always do this, almost never, but today's a day for first. Sometimes we don't know how to pray. That's why we have the Bible and why the people who do know how to pray have written prayers for us that the church prays for thousands of years. But if you want to come home, here's a simple prayer. Can you just pray this with me with your words? And there's nothing magic in them. It's just someone who's followed God for almost 20 years. I can help maybe someone in this room who doesn't know how to talk to God, and that's okay. Just say this with me. Just say, dear, dear Jesus, you are awesome. You are the center of the story that I long to belong to. I give you my life. I give you my sins, my regrets. Would you, in your mercy, receive me Forgive me, heal me, make me whole. I want to come home to your love. I want to find myself fully immersed in your epic story. I receive this love, healing, forgiveness, and newness because you're good. Jesus' name, amen and amen.